Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian True Crime Live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. And then when it was over, it was like she was driving back to school. It was like it never happened, you know, kind of acting like that was just the most normal thing in the world. So it was kind of this distortion of reality. 
that I couldn't understand and that kept happening again and again. There was no sign that there was this secret going on. That worked until it started happening at school as well. In 2019, we spoke to Darcy Ehrlich, who at that time was waging a tireless campaign alongside her two sisters to see their former high school principal, Malka Leifer, brought back to Australia to face their allegations of sexual abuse. Leifer had fled Australia with her family to Israel when she learned the allegations had been made against her in 2008 and was finally found guilty of 18 rape and child sexual abuse charges in April of this year, 2023. Judge Mark Gamble set her sentencing date for August 24 this year. There seems little doubt that Malka's gender played a part in the disbelief her victims faced. Just weeks ago on Australian True Crime, we spoke to John Rouse, one of the founding members of Task Force Argos, the world-leading team of analysts dedicated to investigating online child exploitation and abuse, who told us he believes female sex offenders are more prevalent than we realise. Uh, look, it's always been underreported, I would suggest to you. We actually dedicated one of our conferences to the issue of, of female offenders. And look, this, this opens up another completely separate conversation around how the courts deal with female offenders. In the next episode of Australian True Crime, we'll hear from a woman who was victimised as a child in a Catholic institution by a female offender. But today, we're sharing Dussie Ehrlich's original episode from 2019 again, as a reminder of why she reported and never stopped. At that time, it was actually pretty unlikely that Malka Leifer would ever return to Australia to face charges. But Dussie never gave up hope, and she was always determined to keep sharing her story no matter what, because she wanted to give other survivors the strength to speak out as well. I grew up in an ultra-Orthodox community, very, very religious, closed community, insular community, that basically had uh, no connection to the world outside of our community. In Melbourne, in East St Kilda. Yeah, so that's like a really central suburb, a really cool, fun suburb. I lived in St Kilda for a long time when I was young without kids, you know, because it's like such a fun place to live and there's so much life and so much going on. And and we would see you guys, mm. see you, your families, you know, wandering around the streets, going to and from your services. Is that Synagogue, what yeah. Synagogue. Um, and particularly when there were festivals on. What's the name of the festival where the little kids dress up in costumes? Purim. Just happened. We love Purim. <laughs> Sitting on sometimes balconies, friends' balconies, and watching the kids in their Purim <laughs> costumes. Beautiful. So it's so funny because I felt like part of the same community as you, but you weren't part of the same community as me? Not at all, no. Wow. I mean, the people that I knew were all part of my community and we didn't interact with anybody outside of our community. So we had a couple of teachers coming through the school that weren't Jewish or, you know, the way that the community saw them and the way that we were taught to see them was, you know, we were superior, we were, you know, kind of we were doing the most right thing, we were religious and we were the right type of religious and quite disrespectful in a way to people that weren't like us. That was the way that I was taught. The whole energy in the school was, you know, Jewish studies and all of that type of stuff. We didn't really have a normal curriculum. I left school probably with about a grade six English. Didn't do VCE. That would have been too much exposure to the outside world. All of the books that we 
read were vetted, no newspapers, no newsletters, no internet, nothing like that. So the information we got was very controlled. My son would have a fit if he heard what you just said. No internet. internet. Yeah, my kids too. So in the community still today, these kids aren't playing Fortnite, Roblox? Not at all. YouTube? Not at all. No YouTube? No YouTube, nothing. No TV even. So, wow. you know, I sometimes talk to some of my friends that are still part of the community and I'll tell them like world events that have happened. And unless it's gone around the community and it's something really big, they'll kind of quiz me about it because I've never heard about it. You know, oh, that's really interesting. I'll tell them what's happening with a case that has kind of hit, you know, international news and they'll have no idea. They wait for me to talk to them to kind of get an update about what's happening. So you would get your information from your community leaders, your teachers, your parents? Yes, and it was very, very censored. So the information was extremely censored. The guidelines about what we could know and what we couldn't know were very strict and very clear, and all the teachers that came into the school were given those guidelines and told what they could talk about and what they couldn't talk about. However, with that said, would you characterise your childhood as a happy one? No. Oh, okay. I mean, in my particular circumstances, my parents were very abusive, right. So, which is what made me a target for Malkalifa. But in the community in of itself, if you fit within a certain mould and you stick to that mould and you don't try and be any different, you can have quite a happy life. You know, there are community organisations that help you out in your time of need as long as you fit within that mould. As long as you do what is expected of you. Absolutely. My parents were physically and emotionally, it was a lot more than discipline. We lived in utter fear and terror of our parents growing up. Both of them. Yeah. What were their backgrounds? What were their childhoods like? Similar? So my mum was Israeli and my dad was English. They met in England when my mum's family moved there, came to Australia, were not part of the dust community at first, but by the time I was born, they had kind of moved into the community And almost in like a way that, you know, they felt that they really wanted to belong. They went to the extremes of doing everything they could to fit in and to be a part of the community. I've met similar families. I I was raised Catholic and I remember my mum would say, the converts, they're always the worst. (laughs) She used to say that about Catholic families. They were always so hardcore and so extreme about everything. I think maybe that's a common thing. Yeah, And I Susan think so. Carlin talks about, I can't remember, she has a name for, because she is one, she's a convert to Islam, and she has a funny name. She and her friends, the other converts, call themselves. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a thing. Oh, for sure. I think it's that sense of needing to belong and having to prove yourself yeah. to, your, like, to yourself and to the community that mm. you fit in. Do you think that's why they were so extreme um, with you kids? Was that part of it? I think that was definitely a part of it. I mean, we were one of the more like extreme families in the, in the community. I wouldn't say, I mean, there was a lot of extreme people in that community. Like there a lot of people that were kind of living this very, you know, rigid lifestyle. And the way I see it now is like a cult in a way. I mean, when you start censoring information, it becomes a cult. And I know families with, you know, 8, 10, 12 children, I've spoken to Manny Wax before and he sort of talks about living across the road and many children in the family and just sort of the logistics that go into living like that as well as living in the community and, yeah, it's a very extreme lifestyle, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Two kitchens for a start and all that (laughs) stuff and... All of that stuff. I mean, I'm one of seven and that was considered a small family. I had 
four younger siblings and my parents stopped having kids after that because my mum was quite unwell. Yeah, everyone was like, when's the next baby coming? You have to actually get your rabbi's permission to stop having children or to go on birth control, whatever it is. So I'm, I'm assuming that's what my parents got. Wow. So when you left school and you said your education wasn't really up to the same standard as if you didn't go to a, an ultra-Orthodox Jewish school, am I getting it right? Yeah. I don't want to misrepresent. What was the expectation for you to do then when you left school? The expectation was, and this has been taught like taught to me since I was three years old, was to get married and my parents found a match for me and it was an arranged married and start having children and bring up the next generation of ultra-Orthodox religious, you know, Jewish kids. That was pretty much something that had been drilled into me from the minute I was born, that that was my purpose as a woman in the community was to grow up, get married and have more children. How did you feel about that? Growing up, I mean, that's what I wanted. That's I I didn't know any different. That was something, you know, it was never, I never learned that, you know, I could be anything I wanted or it just never came into my world. So it wasn't something that I was missing. I just didn't know about it. I would think maybe I, in that situation, I might look forward to having my own family and being being the boss of it. Maybe, you know, if that's if that's the future that's been mapped out for me, there might be aspects of that that I look forward to. Oh, yeah. I wanted nothing more than to have my own family yeah. and to have kids and nothing more than that. What do you remember about your life and your circumstances when Malco Lifer came into your life? How um, old were you? I was about probably about 13, 14 years old around that time, starting high school, and my world was one of... I can't use any other words, but pain, Um, painful. And she came into the school, kind of swept in, took everyone, you know, kind of under her wings. And she was this kind of larger than life type of person. Everyone looked up to her. And then she started kind of singling out girls. You know, she had her favorites and Everyone wanted to be her favourite. Everyone wanted to have the attention of the principal of the school. Did she have a different vibe to everything else? She had a very energetic, like, kind of drive. She was everywhere all at the same time. Everyone wanted to speak to her. She listened to everybody. She knew everything. She was incredibly intelligent. And it just felt like, you know, someone had kind of come into the school and changed the school around. There was definitely a different kind of vibe. And were you surprised when her light shone on you? She was kind of talking to my older sister quite a bit and my older sister explained to me that she had confided in Malkalifa about our home life. Now, we didn't ever talk about our home life at school. That would have been seen as like a black mark against our name that we came from an abusive background and when it came to being matched to get married... Like that would be a black mark against your name. So that was something that we were very aware of, that we didn't share that with anybody. I maybe clued in one or two of my friends about what was going on, but for the most part uh, we really kept it under wraps because we didn't want to kind of have the light shone on us for a reason that would kind of give us a black mark against our name. Yeah, because that's your escape that you've oh, absolutely. you're looking at is to get a good marriage. Exactly. Yeah. So when she told me that she had confided in her and that she trusted her, I thought, wow, this is someone that we can talk to. This is someone that understands and certain times my mum would keep us home from school or stuff like that or not allow, allow us to go on excursions or camps or stuff. There was, you know, the principal of the school calling her up and saying, you need to allow your daughters to, to do this. Oh, wow. So she's really fighting for you. Oh, 100%. That's what it felt like wow. at the time. Gosh, okay. It just makes it all the more painful 
And again, you know, as a person who has not been groomed in my own life, I feel like in recent times I've heard people talk about it in just these open ways that help me to understand really things like that. It it makes me understand, I think maybe a little better, the sense of betrayal then when you are hurt by this person who has fought for you in a way that no one else ever has before. Exactly. And that was exactly it. Then you have a moment of realising that that's not what they were doing actually. They were oh, serving yeah. themselves. Took me a long time to realise that. Of course, you're a child. Okay, so this is all happening, the principal's fighting for me. So then I started talking to the principal and she started calling me into her office and she was giving me this attention and my classmates started noticing, oh, you know, you're one of life's you know, favourites, uh, which gave me a certain status in the class and that was something obviously that I wanted. And um, the relationship kind of became closer and closer. She would call me out, she would pull me out of class. Then she asked my parents if she can have me over on Sundays to do like private lessons, like Jewish, I don't know how to say it, hashkafa lessons. I'm just trying to think of the word you know, how you're supposed to behave as a Jewish as a Jewish girl and a Jewish woman. She asked if my parents if I can come to the school on Sunday mornings and have lessons with her and that I shouldn't tell anybody else that this is happening because otherwise all the parents are going to be asking for their kids to have the same lessons with her. So my parents agreed because, you know, she was kind of like this person in the community that everyone looked up to and if she asked them, then they're going to say yes, even though usually, you know, Sundays my parents never let us, you know, do anything. So for me, it was like I was getting this escape out of home. I was, you know, going to spend some time with someone that really cared about me and that was fighting for me, listening to me for the first time. And that's kind of where I would say the more the physical grooming started. So emotionally, I really trusted her at that point. I looked up to her. And that's when she started testing the boundaries. Touching you or being physical with you to see what your reaction would be. I mean, it started very slowly, you know, just a hand on the knee, then a bit higher, then a bit higher. And then, yeah, she took me out of school one day. I was about 16 at the time. Took me home to her house and locked all the doors in her house. And I remember this very vividly because she called up her husband to make sure that he wasn't coming home and told him that she was just, you know, home for a little bit getting something. She didn't mention that I was there and um, lay me on the couch and pretty much just sat next to me telling me that she loved me and I was like a daughter to her and that I should call her a mother. And then she, yeah, undressed me for the first time. And that was for me shocking because nobody had ever seen me naked before. Nobody had, like even my sisters hadn't seen me naked. The modesty in the community is very extreme. So, you know, have sports at school, you'll kind of get changed in separate cubicles. No one, you know, no one sees anybody else. And I just disassociated at that point. That was a coping mechanism that I had had, you know, as a young child and I used that then. And then when it was over, it was like she was driving back to school. It was like it had never happened. It was like, okay, this really weird, strange, I don't know how to explain what happened, happened. And then we're driving back to school, you know, kind of acting like that was just the most normal thing in the world. So it was kind of this distortion of reality that I couldn't understand and that kept happening again and again. But at the same time, it helped me to 
compartmentalize it. So that was what was happening then. And then the rest of the times when I would see her at school and, you know, would pass each other in the hallways, it was like completely normal. Like there was no sign that there was this secret going on. Yeah, this is our school relationship, which is completely normal. And that's a separate relationship. That worked until it started happening at school as well, which that was more difficult to compartmentalise, but I still managed to do that because, I mean, A, there was no one to talk to and I I didn't even have the words to understand what was happening, um, being that we had absolutely no sexual education whatsoever. And the only sexual education that I got was, you know, from, from my older sister a couple months before I got married and told me this is what happens when you get married and this is what's going to happen. And that was a huge shock to me. I bet. I was going to ask, obviously, no sexual education or education about the changes that happen to your body through puberty. So it must have just been really very isolating growing up, not really understanding what was happening and then you're being groomed and abused. Yeah. So you didn't even know that was what it was no not at all had absolutely no idea I mean these were things that people never ever spoke about so you only really find out about sex on your wedding night pretty pretty much much. like a couple of weeks maybe months before you have you know marital lessons and there are certain people in the community that are designated as those people to give the marital lessons my older sister happened to be one of them at the time so I went to her and she was describing to me what happened. And at the time I was still being abused by Lifer and I was, you know, she asked me now, why didn't you ever tell me? I mean, still then, even while she was explaining to me the mechanics of what happened, I still didn't connect the dots that that's that what was happening was sexual because she was explaining to me what happens between a male and a female. And I understood that was what was going to happen on my, the day that I got married. So it, took me quite a while after that, even then, to connect the dots. So when did you? And what dots were they? When did you realise, when did you think that what Lifa was doing to you was having sex with you? When did you feel like it had to stop? Uh, well, after I got married. How old I, were you? 19. Wow. I moved to Israel with my husband and that's when it stopped. I wasn't in Australia anymore. Otherwise it would have continued because I still would have not been connecting the dots at that point. And I moved to Israel and started this new life with my husband. I was very excited. You know, we're going to start having kids and, you know, I'm going to create this Jewish family. I'm going to be the mom. Exactly. I'm going to be the mom. And, you know, I'm all excited about this. I started trying to get pregnant and I was, wasn't was able to get pregnant. And I went to doctors and they told me, you know, everything's normal. There's no reason why you shouldn't be able to get pregnant. But I just wasn't able to get pregnant. And I started feeling, because that was the purpose in my life, like, you know, that was the only thing I felt like I was supposed to do and I could do and now I couldn't do it. I started feeling like life was pointless if I couldn't have, you know, if I couldn't have kids. So... I started seeing a therapist. I was quite depressed at the time. All of my classmates that had got married at the same time were having their first kid and then their second kid. And in the meantime, I'm still struggling to get pregnant. So I went to see a therapist and I started explaining to her my thoughts around sex, my belief systems, my thoughts, my lack of desire or whatever it was. It was like I was, I was struggling with my husband in that way. And so she said to me, something doesn't sound right here. Like what you're telling me, there's something that's not adding up. And I kind of looked at her like, 
I think that's when I started connecting the dots. I was like, maybe that something doesn't add up because there are other things that I'm not really saying. But at the time, I didn't really have an understanding yet of that. So I kept going to see her and eventually she said to me, I think something's happened to you. She kind of worked that out. The reason that I was seeing her was because I knew her from Australia. She had worked with Malkalifa in Australia. She knew my family. She knew my parents. And she had moved to Israel around the same time I had. So I reached out to her because she was someone I knew. So I was very hesitant to tell her who it was because I knew that she knew Malkalifa and there was no way that she was going to believe me. So we spent quite a few sessions with her, With first, first me saying, telling her that, yeah, it was someone at school that had, I explained to her some of the things that had happened and, you know, she kind of told me that was abuse. Then I said to her, you know, I can't tell you who it is, but it's someone at the school. And she said, oh, we need to call Malkalifa and tell her. Oh, God. And I was like, no, 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 you can't do that. I don't give you permission to do that. And then the next session after I realised, like, you know, she was going to call Malkalifa. If I didn't tell her who it was, uh, the next session I told her who it was and she kind of looked at me with this absolute look of disbelief, like, that's not possible. Like, she knew Malkalifa and... I said to her, well, I know my older sister went through the same thing as me. I had witnessed it at one point. I said to her, you can call my older sister and talk to her and she'll confirm that it's true. So that's what she did. She called my older sister. My sister said, yep, it's true. Also not realising what she was doing by confirming it was true. So... You and your sister by this stage knew that you had had the same experience with Malkalifa, but you didn't realise it was abuse? We had never spoken about it. Okay, but you had witnessed it? I had witnessed it in a, in a camp room one night. But you hadn't disclosed to your sister that you had witnessed it? Uh, I can't remember if there were any words, but there was this look uh, of understanding. Okay. She knew that I was awake in the room at the time, okay. even though they both thought that I was sleeping. So... There was this like look the next morning of, okay, we get each other. We know what's happening. I mean, that particular camp, you know, Malkalifa had taken me into her room for hours and hours. And so she kind of put the dots together that if I was alone with Malkalifa for hours and hours and everyone in the whole camp was looking for her and everyone knew that she was with me, that most likely what was happening with her was happening with me. So it was kind of this look of mutual understanding. But again, we didn't have any words for it. So we didn't really talk about it. So yeah. she gets a phone call out of the blue. She gets a phone call out of the blue to say, this is what your sister is claiming happened. Is is that true? I mean, she was shocked and she was, I mean, what else could she say? She said, yes. This idea of, you know, the school is not really going to believe if it's two sisters. Who else do we know was abused that the school will believe is, de- you know, and, and will definitely take their word that it's true. And we knew that one of the teachers in the school, her daughter, had been abused and she was very close to Malkalifa. We said to this teacher, call up your daughter and she'll confirm with you. And she did. And that was obviously a massive shock to her. But it was having her own daughter's word that she realised this is really true. And that's when the kind of the ball started rolling in regards to approaching the board and the events that happened. Well, and then when the that. ball started rolling, I mean, things happened very quickly. Yeah, midnight flit. Yeah.
If you're an adult survivor of childhood sexual abuse and you'd like to talk to someone about it, I recommend Bravehearts. You can start with their website, bravehearts.org.au, or you can call them on 1800 272 831. You can also call 1800 RESPECT, that's 1800 737 732, or Lifeline for 24 hour phone counselling on 13 11 14. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I believe that there were several meetings at the time. Some of that came out in my civil case. I guess we'll never really know what the truth about what was actually said and who said it and who organised her tickets outside, you know, out to Israel. But what did come out in the civil case were that there were several meetings with uh, Rabbonim, so the rabbis of the community, um, and then meetings with the board. And it was at that final meeting that Leifa was contacted and the allegations were put to her and she said, you know, it's not true, you know, this is, what are you doing to me? And within a couple of hours, the school board had paid for her tickets to leave to Israel that night with four of her kids. That's shameful. I just cannot, you don't have to know names of who made up the board of the school. The board of the school was made up by like the founding families of the community. Mm. So it's it very was. Very powerful, very powerful. Yeah, so it was, and it still is to this day, you know, it's kind of now their kids. So the founding families of the community that had built the school, they were the ones that were on the board. So how much time elapsed between the first phone call to the school alerting them to the accusations and Malka Leifer's flight to Israel? I think it was a few days, yeah. But Leifer still came into school in between that period of time. So there were people that knew what was happening and knew that the allegations were going to be put to her. She had obviously heard about this. She came into school. My sister was teaching at the school she kind of knocked on my sister's door. And my sister had been warned that Leifa would try and contact her and get some information from her. So the school were very aware that my sister was one of the victims of Leifa. And they just told her, you know, don't tell her anything. So, of course, Leifa came into school, knocked on the door that my, you know, of the classroom that my sister was teaching in and pulled my sister out and said, you know, what's going on? What's happening? And my sister, who had been 
prep for that, just said, I don't know, I have no idea. Nothing got to do with me, I don't know, and went back to teacher class. And that was, I think, the last time that Lifer was in school. Gosh, you women are incredible. You girls are incredible. Um, that it's is been amazing. a journey. Well, it has been a journey, but the things that you just walked through, just just stepped through in terms of, you know, just getting married and going on with your life and your sister becoming a teacher in the school and seeing her every day. And it's just amazing when you look back on it now, isn't it? Oh, 100%. It kind of seems so different from my life now, especially. I, I can't imagine being that, you know, scared, terrified, shy, I don't know, just it was such a different life to the life, you know, especially to the life that I have now. But, yeah, I can't imagine even now looking back, I can't like see myself as that person. Um, Could you ever have believed the fight that you have been through up to this point and that you're still in? I mean, that shy girl who had so little knowledge of the rest of the world You've just returned again from Israel and New York, right? Yeah. Still fighting this through several jurisdictions, le- legal jurisdictions. Can you believe that? I I cannot. It's I mean, sometimes I kind of like look back and I think like if Malkalifa knew what we were capable of, yeah. would have she abused us? You know, she saw us as the perfect targets, knowing that we were abused and that we had no one to, to look up to when we were very vulnerable I don't think she could have ever believed that we would become the women that we are today and do what we're doing. Talk us through the fight. She she fled to Israel, but you have been fighting to extradite her back to Australia ever since. Where are you up to with that? I believe most recently two psychiatrists have told an Israeli court that she is fit to be extradited to Melbourne. What is her argument against being extradited back to Melbourne? Oh, she has many arguments about, <laughs> you know, not being extradited, but her main one being that she's too mentally unwell to face an extradition trial. What we've been told by the prosecutor team in Israel is all she has to understand is like a three-year-old understanding of you are getting on a plane and going to Australia. That's all she has to understand. Mm-hmm. So her lawyers are trying to, and the psychiatrists that have reviewed her that are saying she's not fit, are basically saying she is not capable of even understanding that knowledge. And so she has multiple psychiatrists and there's still quite a few psychiatrists lined up to take the stand to say exactly that, that she is not capable of understanding even that. And that's because she's mentally unwell and can't comprehend that knowledge. But she's in prison in Israel, right? Yes, and there have been multiple bail hearings. I think we're up to five now, asking for her to be released either to house arrest or to go into psychiatric hospital, and those have all been turned down so far. I noticed there's a name, and I saw it on the news most recently, Dr. Brian Trapler, who had originally supported Leifer saying that she was unfit to stand trial, but he's kind of changed track a bit, has he? I don't think he's changed tracks. He actually came into court. We were there during that court hearing that he was cross-examined. It's quite a fascinating court hearing. He spoke English, so it was easier for us to understand because we don't speak Hebrew. He came into court saying, you know, Malka Leifer is unfit. She's got this mental illness and this mental illness. And every single psychiatrist that has, you know, come for her defence and said that she's not fit has testified that she has a different mental illness. So I think we're up to bipolar, schizophrenia, PTSD, anxiety, depression. Uh, She's got them all. 
he came into court testifying that she was unwell and that she was not capable of understanding that she needed to face extradition trial. And the prosecutor kind of pulled out this Facebook post of his that pretty much said that the reason he was testifying was because we didn't look religious, like the accusers didn't look religious mm. and that he believed that Malkalifa had been made a, a scapegoat and that he um, was testifying because she shouldn't have to face the secular courts. Wow. So they put these questions to him. He panicked and he, he turned around to the judge and he said, I hope you don't take my recommendation as the only recommendation to make your decision. You know, that would be too much responsibility on me. Uh, but he said that he had been told by Lifer's family that, you know, that we weren't religious anymore. I don't know how that's relevant. It's not relevant at all. But to him, it was very relevant. And that, you know, Lifer shouldn't have to face the secular courts. He said a whole bunch of other things, but that he thought that Lifer had been made a scapegoat, which is the reason that he became involved in the case. So much victim blaming there, like just yeah. because you are you don't fit the mould of what they think someone should be. Um, so I guess he was just worried about how he'd end up looking really, not actually about the well-being of you. Oh, no. Um, when you talk about secular courts and is it a different court system in Israel or is that what he means? That Do they have a religious life- court system? Yeah. There is a religious court system. The secular court system, obviously the Israeli court system is the Israeli right. court system that takes precedence over any religious court system although I'm not sure how much that works in Israel. I'm not exactly sure. But, yeah, there is a religious court system and those in the religious community believe that those things should be taken to the rabbis and the rabbis should make a decision about what should happen. Well, it seems like they did make the decision in Australia and they sent her to Israel. Exactly. (laughs) They moved their problems somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. There have been accusations made by Israeli citizens or at least one Israeli citizen against Malka Leifer, right? Yes. I mean, the first time we went to Israel, we did this podcast with a religious organisation and we started getting all these messages from everybody. Yeah, Leifer taught in B'nai Brak before she came to Australia. She left under very similar circumstances. She left very suddenly. One day she was there and the next day she was gone. You know, she always was very intimate with her students in a way that was very unusual. Then there started being rumours and suddenly she was gone. So we suspected for a long time that that's what was happening. And, yeah, I I believe one person has spoken to uh, the press in Israel anonymously and said that that was the case. Israel's public broadcaster Khan said it had spoken to a woman who claimed she was abused as a child by Lifer before the teacher moved to Australia. So that investigation's ongoing. Are you aware of any other people who have made accusations against Malka Leifer from Australia, from your school, how many how many people have made accusations? We know as growing up, you know, under Leifer and the girls that she was close to and as someone that was being abused by her, we recognise the signs in other girls that were being abused to her and some of them have reached out to us and have spoken to us and want to know what's going on with the case. And I would say around 15 students. I'm personally in touch with about three or four. My sister's in touch with a, a couple of others Some of them have said, you know, they don't want to know about this case. They think that we're doing the wrong thing. They don't want to have any attention. They don't want to jeopardise their positions in the community. There's also been allegations since she returned to Israel that she abused someone in Emmanuel, the community that she was living in. Since she returned in 2008? Yeah. Was she teaching when she returned or did she just go and live her life, you know, in Israel 
I believe that there were a couple of people that were kind of following what she was doing and sending emails and letters and saying, you know, she shouldn't be teaching. Uh, but then she moved to this community called Emmanuel, which is, again, a very closed, insular community. I believe that they were warned, you know, that there were things that they were going on, that she was facing some allegations, but she had a way of explaining everything. You know, in Australia, they have different laws. I touch a student that's called sexual abuse. Mm. So she had her she had her ways of explaining things and she started tutoring girls. Oh, God. We actually went back to Emmanuel in one of our recent trips and walked into the building that she was living in and bumped into her son, who we remember because he was about eight or nine when he lived in Australia and we had taken him to school at times. We tried talking to him, but he just wouldn't say a word to us. We were with one camera guy kind of just following us up the stairs and he turned around and started taking pictures of us. And within probably about 10 minutes, we walked out of the building. There were probably about five or six, you know, people hanging over the balconies, taking pictures of us. And the word got around Emmanuel that we were there and no one should speak to us. And we knocked on a couple of neighbours' doors in the same building that she lived in and all of them had just moved in there. You know, we all just moved in. We don't know who you're talking about. The whole building all had just moved in there. Uh-huh. What were you planning to say or do if you... I mean, she was in jail at the right, time. Okay. So we would have not bumped mm-hmm. into her, but we were hoping to speak to some of her neighbours and kind of get an understanding of... Had she been allowed to teach while she was in Emmanuel? What did the community believe about her? What did the community now believe about her? We did speak to someone um, that was willing to speak to us and told us very clearly that he would not go to the authorities, even if it was his own daughter. So that kind of gave us a very clear understanding of why Lifer was able to hide in Emmanuel so effectively. She could really go about unchecked because of the sense that reputation and your honour in your community is paramount, like above oh, above the welfare of your family. Um, I keep thinking about the school there. It's terrible on them, like to us on the outside thinking this school has done this. It's like what the Catholic Church has been going through. Is there a reckoning coming for Jewish schools, the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community with abuse allegations, do you think, or is it just too closed for that to to be happening? Um, You're paving the way in a way to be shining a light on it all. I think it filters through. I want to believe that it filters through, but I get people reaching out to me from the Adas community saying they are going through abuse and that, you know, they feel that they can't come forward because they know the flack that they will receive if they do. You get basically shunned from your community, don't you? Is it's, that? I mean, when I left the community, I knew by giving my police statement that I could no longer be a part of the community because my daughter would be facing the consequences of that as she grew older because I would be seen to have betrayed the community. So has your family been ostracised in the way that um, Manny Wax, who is a Melbourne man, originally a Melbourne man, who attended Melbourne's Yeshiva, is that how I say it, Yeshiva Centre, and alleges that from the age of 11 he was sexually abused by two members of staff at that centre. And as a result of talking about that, he says his entire family was ostracised by the community. Is that your experience? Most of my family have left the community. Um, I have one sister who's still kind of part of the community. People know what she's doing. There's a lot of silence around the issue. A lot of people won't speak to her. Um, My parents 
we don't we're not in touch with our parents I think that they're still a part of the community I don't know how the community has responded to them in regards to the stuff that we have done but we're not in touch with them so I don't want to know Wow, that's really not in touch with them. If you don't even know if they're still in the community, that's a small community. So if you're in touch with anyone in that community, I would think you'd know if your parents were in it. I'm assuming that my parents are still a part of the community. Mm. They haven't moved away as far as I know. I'm assuming that they weren't supportive then of your work. Oh, they disowned us before this all happened, like before the allegations were put forward, before LIFA was sent away. My parents as a whole decided that they were going to disown all their children which now looking back is probably the only good decision that they've ever made. I haven't been in touch with them for a good 10, 11 years now. Wow. Tell us about, about your life now. You just mentioned your daughter. So uh, a little while ago you were talking about your inability to fall pregnant. So that's great news that that did not last, obviously, <laughs> and you, you uh, have had your beautiful Jewish family. Yes. Um, you are the mum. Yes, I am. <laughs> so what is your life like? And, you know, let's think about it in terms of what you thought it would be like when you were that little shy, abused girl, that girl who lived with so much pain. And what is it like? Going back then, I thought, you know, I would be one of those women in the community that had, you know, were by now five, six, seven kids, bringing up my kids in the same way that I had been brought up. I didn't see uh, myself as any different to that. I couldn't be more opposite to that now. Uh, my life now, I, I do have a daughter. She's just eight at the moment, just about to turn nine. Yeah, she kind of lives her world between two different worlds. Her father's still part of the religious community and I'm not a part of the religious community. So that's something we're constantly balancing. I'm at uni. I did my nursing. I'm now doing a graduate certificate in domestic violence. I do a quite a bit of public speaking. I've been campaigning, a lot of meetings, a lot of media. It's just been a complete, you know, 360. I never would have imagined that this is where I'd be. I mean, we weren't allowed to watch TV as a little kid and, you know. And now, now you're on, on it. You're on it. <laughs> you're about to make the third instalment of Australian Story about your no. story. Wow. So are you still married? No. Okay, but... You're managing to, that's incredibly modern for one thing, you're managing to co-parent in these two very different worlds. That's amazing. Is your relationship good, positive? It was a long custody battle Okay. So in I the court, so yeah. I, I think that gives you a good indication of how it ended up. I can't imagine how it could not because, yeah, yeah. this is an incredible um, break that you've made with a person who had no reason to want to make the break as well, I guess. That's not what he was going into when you first got together no no and you didn't realize what you were going into when you first got together either did you because you didn't even really know you were being abused yeah yeah what did you find first when you came into our community which I always thought you were in by the way but when you came into our community what do you remember what did you what did you like what did you think was scary what did you (laughs) I had a lot of first memories. Yeah. Um, I actually ended up in a psychiatric hospital with my daughter. Oh, gosh. Uh, which is where I made my police statement from. And I met with mums who were struggling with the same issues that I was struggling with. And all my life I'd been taught that, you know, people outside of our community are like drug addicts and alcoholics and this whole, you know, they're less than. And then I meet these mums and they're struggling the same way I am and doing whatever they can to be the best mums they can be for their kids. And I was quite depressed at the time, self-harming, and I was 
quite suicidal. Um, and I meet mums who are going through the same thing and we became lifelong friends and they couldn't believe that I had, you know, never watched Titanic. Or <laughs> <laughs> so we set up this like kind of nightly movie night where they were introducing me to the classics. And I remember just one night my friend at the hospital couldn't believe that I had never had a McDonald's burger. Yeah. So at like probably 12 a.m., you know, in the middle of the night, she's running across in her pyjamas to, you know, <laughs> the McDonald's across the road and getting me this $1 McDonald burger. Um, and then she's like sitting there waiting, you know, is it good? Do you like it? And I'm like, do you want to tell her it's probably one of the worst things I've ever tasted in my life? No, you've got to be introduced to it quite young, I think. Yeah. But um, it was quite the memory. Yeah. Oh, wow. Gosh, I'm glad you're thriving. I'm glad it, yeah. it agrees with you, obviously. You've got a career and you're yeah. doing all this amazing advocacy work and and your sisters, the rest of your siblings, are you still in touch with, with everybody else? Yeah, well, very close, our sisters. Yeah. So my two sisters have been campaigning with me, Ellie and, yes. and Nicole. They've been campaigning quite publicly with me as well. So um, they're out there and talking about this. But, yeah, my brothers, I'm very close with my brothers, my older siblings. Uh, one of my sisters unfortunately passed away. As a sibling group, we're very close. That's wonderful. Wow, you are something. <laughs> Thanks. I think it's, you know, I think it comes down to finding the positive in things, pushing forward, not giving up. Sometimes I get asked, like when I do public speaking, you know, what's helped you survive this and continue going every day. And I think as a kid, when you're growing up in a, in a constant survival mode and you learn that you have to survive and that you have to get through, that has come back to help me as an adult every court hearing and there's another frustration and there's just, you know, continuous court hearings and dealing with the Israeli media and then the Australian media and that constant kind of reminder of a life that I would rather just move away from and forget. I think that kind of resilience from growing up in such a, an environment has really, it's really helping me today. That's amazing. What are the next steps? And you've got a good community of supporters, don't you, who are oh, really backing 100%. you. What can we yeah. do to help the non-Jewish community can do? Like, yeah, I'm sure that I'm, I was just thinking the yeah, same thing. Yeah. I thought, oh, I just want to help you. I know. And I know our listeners will be thinking the same thing. So how can people support you? Is it how do you pay for all of this travel and all of this stuff? Can we donate to you or is it letter writing? Is it how do we show support for you? Well, I think, I mean, continuing to raise awareness about this case, I mean, it was the fact that the case became such a high-profile case that led to the first private investigation against Leifer that has landed her back in jail and led to the second investigation against Litzman, the Israeli politician, health minister that is now being investigated for helping Leifer avoid justice. It's the public awareness of this case that has helped push it forward and I think just opens up the conversation just to a broader issue around sexual abuse in our communities yeah. and what we can do to move forward and to protect our children. So, yeah, raising awareness, that's pretty much. And to children in communities who feel like they can't speak up in their community to know that if you look outside the community there's help. Is that a message that you would, would share with children? What do you say to those people when they contact you, those young people, and say, I'm being abused? I end up being the support for them. Of course, of course you do. Uh, and I do. I put them in touch with the broader Jewish community organisations okay. that are able to help them. But at the end of the day, unless they're willing to face the consequences of coming out in their community mm. and saying, I'm being abused and I want help, 
they're stuck in that situation, unfortunately. And I just think every time I go out there and I talk and I speak and I do things like this, I'm hoping that that eventually filters through the community and, you know, eventually the community will start to move forward. And I believe that there are small steps that are being taken, but there is still a long way to go. Why is the community secretive about this? Why would the community be prepared to sacrifice you to prevent us knowing about Malka Lifa? That's a great question. I think it's about protecting the institution and protecting the community and keeping it all in-house as soon as you start speaking to the police and, you know, start talking to the media. um, You're shining a bad light on the community. You're, you know, shining a light that these things do happen in the community. So first of all, it's the denial that these things happen. But if they do happen, it's this belief that we can take care of our own, we can do it ourselves, we don't need outside help. It's control. That's what it comes down to. It's control and it's about power and it's about sacrificing, you know, the individual to protect the the institution. I worked with the school board for a while trying to advocate for an apology to the victims and that kind of ended nowhere. Don't think an apology has been given. You know, that's what I I spoke to the school about. I said this would be great leadership for Mm -hmm. your school to Mm -hmm. know that the school board says that they agree that you should go to the police publicly and that they apologise for what has happened and that they will support anyone else that is going through this situation. Those are the three items that I asked them to Mm -hmm. talk about in their apology, that they will support anyone else. I said it would be great for the school, the, the community to see that their leaders are putting something out like this publicly I don't even need the apology anymore, but for your own community, do it for your own community. Hasn't happened. Do you have any idea of when there might be a conclusion to this case, when one way or another she will either be brought back to Australia to face these charges or she will know that she never has to come back to Australia? So we sat down with the prosecution team and asked them exactly that question. Yeah. You know, what's the expected progression of the case? There are a couple of court hearings upcoming, more psychiatrists for the defence saying that she's not fit for trial. I believe then that the private investigators will be cross-examined about their investigation because the defence is claiming that that has been edited or that has been faked or whatever it That's is. That's right, because I've seen vision of her wandering around I can't remember the ins and outs of it, but it was supposed to... Buying her groceries or something. Yeah, she'd said that she had agoraphobia and couldn't leave the house or something. She was saying that she needed a daily care. Her family was saying that she needed a carer for her daily living needs, that she couldn't do anything of her own there. The last psychiatric assessment that she had actually just before she was arrested was that she needed her family wanted a medical power of attorney because they didn't trust her with her own medical needs. So that was the point that they were up to, that they were saying that she couldn't even look after herself and then she was out and about doing her shopping. Mm. So, I mean, there's quite a, been quite a bit of talk about, well, you know, people that are mentally unwell can still, you know, go about and do their daily business. I mean, I'm living proof of that. You know, I've suffered. You yeah, can get you on know, a with plane mental then. illness yeah. and I've still managed to live my life. It was the extent of the mental illness that they were saying, that she was so unwell, that she was in bed all day and couldn't comprehend what people were saying to her, mm. couldn't talk, you know, people couldn't talk to her. She was living in her own world. She was psychotic. It was the extent of the mental illness that they were claiming that kind of put to light, well, if she's going about doing her shopping and, you know, talking to people and, you know, writing checks and whatever it is, she can understand she needs to get on a plane and go to Australia. 
So what do they reckon? Wow. So they reckon after a couple of more, um, after they cross-examine the private investigators, the judge has just said they're going to allow other witnesses, the character witnesses possibly, and that can take months and months. That's been quite a blow to us recently that she's going to allow other witnesses before she makes a decision on whether or not Lifer is mentally fit to stand trial. Once that decision is made, which now we've been told can take like another 12 months, then it will go to extradition trial. And that's one or two hearings. That shouldn't be complicated. That will be more about whether Australia has a right to extradite LIFA, what are the charges she's facing, if she'll get a fair trial here, all of those types of things. Then either way, the decision is expected to be appealed in the Supreme Court. And that can take time because it takes a while to get a Supreme Court decision. And then once the Supreme Court decides on a decision and that's handed to the Justice Minister, Ayelet Shaked, who we met the first time we were in Israel and promised us that she would sign the papers if it reaches her desk, if she's still the Justice Minister, <laughs> by that time, with the upcoming elections in Israel now, if she signs it off, that's when the Australian police, who have been you know, in close contact with, will fly over to Israel and pick her up. When I first gave my police statement in 2011, that's what the police told me. You know, you give her your police statement, we'll put the extradition request through to Israel, she'll be back on a plane here in the next year or something. That was the expected progression at the time. And we had no idea the trouble that we would face just trying to get some justice. Does she have big financial support there? She has huge financial support. I was wondering that. I thought, how do you live your life? Like when you're not working and how do you finance all this? Who who is her support? The community, the ultra-Orthodox community, different communities in Israel that are completely behind her, financing, willing to do anything to ensure that she does not come back to Australia. Every other day there seems to be some, you know, big rabbi coming out and saying that they've tried to ask, I mean, the latest one was the Western Wall rabbi asked the state prosecutor to release Malkalifa to house arrest. I mean, every other day there's this rabbi, you know, trying to beg for her release and um, she has just an amazing amount of support. And while we were there recently, one of the Israelis reporters put to me, you know, now that you've seen the amount of support she has and it's gone all the way up to the Israeli government, does it make you more worried that you won't get justice? But I think, you know, the support that we have and the the light that is on this case, I think that we have a good chance. Yeah. And I have to believe you know that. What? I think it has to be about you, doesn't it? Really. If you ever get to the point where it feels like it's taking more from you, then maybe you stop, right? But as long as it feels like it's the right thing for you to be doing, then you have to keep doing it, right? Ah, oh, 100%. Yeah. And it has. It's taken a toll as it, as it yeah. would. You know, the broader issues around continuing to fight for this, mm. that still keeps us going. Yeah, and I always feel like you sisters are kind of fighting for each other as well. Mm. And, yeah, yeah, I think it in a weird way you're getting something out of this fight, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm learning a lot. I'm in touch with so many people that I yeah. would have never been in touch with you know, had I not started this fight, I feel like I have a voice and Mm -hmm. that's something obviously that I didn't have growing up. So I have a voice. It's been validated. It's been listened to. Uh, My sisters have a voice. They've been validated. The amount of support, it's very validating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're a leader. Thank you. Thank you to our guest, Darcy Ehrlich. We're sending all of our love and best wishes to Darcy, her sisters, Ellie Supper and Nicole Meyer, and we'll keep you informed regarding the results of the sentencing hearing of Malka Leifer on August 24. 
If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, Michelle Laurie here. And as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian True Crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.